When looking at new technologies, how can companies overcome internal resistance to change, and what are some common mistakes with early adoption? How can companies take advantage of disruptive technologies to be successful in the future? In this episode, we talk to a leading analyst about some of the biggest trends and challenges in the industrial market right now, including edge computing, virtual and augmented reality, and cybersecurity, as well as the rapid acceleration of digital transformation and the importance of remote access during the COVID pandemic. This is Inductive Conversations with Don Pearson speaking with our guest, Craig Resnick from the ARC Advisory Group. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Inductive Conversations. Greg, thank you so much for being here, a returning guest on our podcast today, and we're going to be discussing some of the current trends and challenges in the market right now. Thanks, Don. Great to be here again. It's good to have you again. Before we begin, can you tell us more about ARC Advisory Group and what your role is in the advisory group? Well, ARC Advisory Group, we're about 100 people located or across the planet. We've been around since 1986, and we do everything from market research to management consulting and strategic planning for three types of customers. One is anybody that actually does any sort of manufacturing or processing, both in the industrial world and also in the, as we extend over into areas like smart cities. The companies that sell solutions uh, to that space, uh, so the automation companies, uh, certainly advice such as inductive automation. And uh, also the financial community, the companies that cover the publicly held companies in industrial and uh, automation suppliers, for example, enterprise software suppliers, trying to help them uh, with their uh, guidance as well when they make the equities decisions for these companies. Thanks, Craig. You know, I'm just sitting there listening to you and realizing that um, you were the very first guest on our very first podcast. We sat down in the, uh, the ARC Advisor Group's uh, forum in Orlando a couple of years ago. And also, I realized that usually you're sitting on the other side of this particular uh, microphone here because you've interviewed me a half a dozen times in your executive interviews every time. So I'm happy to have a chance to put the show on the other foot and I get to do the interviewing of you today. Okay. And hopefully you'll be as uh, gentle with me as I am with you when you're ready. Oh, of course. Of course. So listen, you mentioned the overall what you're doing in advisory group, but you guys do a lot of research and writing about new and disruptive technologies. Often one of the big obstacles to technology adoption is this big, broad category called resistance to change. So from your perspective, what are some of the most effective ways to overcome that resistance and to really you know, assist people to be able to embrace a new solution? You know, the biggest mistake a lot of companies make is they uh, send out a memo to their employees and say, we're now going to be deploying this program or solution and the employees are like, what does that even mean? How does, how does it affect me? Is this something that's, that's positive or, or negative to my, to my future? So we always say is if you, if you bring people in to the planning process ahead of time, empower them, take their inputs and concerns, you know, show them how these technologies are going to enhance their day-to-day -day role and, and actually provide a path for them in the future. I mean, they need to have an understanding and, the, and a buy-in of what the benefits of the technology are going to be, you know, from all levels of the organization. And everybody has, has to get some sort of a sense as to kind of what's in it for me. And uh, will that technology provide them with a, a new or evolving role? You know, sometimes you have people who maybe have a fear, or is this, is this technology now going to replace me? Am I going to lose, lose my job? And if that's the case, you're going to see an internal resistance that might... Uh, hamper or delay any sort of future success or changes. 
it, it really is involved, uh, you know, empowering them, uh, making them part of the input, showing them a path forward, and showing them how technology actually can provide greater job security rather than potentially eliminating, uh, you know, what, uh, you know, their role today. And if that is going to be the case, how can you provide them a path tomorrow that's even going to make them a more valuable employee in the future to their present company and also give them the skills it takes uh, to go into the, uh, into the workforce again if they need to pursue opportunities elsewhere? That makes total sense. I mean, obviously, you want to get someone on the same page with the path forward, not trying to stop the path forward because they see it as a threat to themselves, their value, their future, whatever those concerns may be. So very good points. Let me, let me shift a little bit. In inductive automation, we do see a demand for greater power and functionality at the edge of the network. Can you talk a little bit about why and how manufacturers are doing more with edge computing? Well, edge is certainly one of the fastest growing areas in, in automation. And uh, even in our, in, our, in our market studies, it still has uh, you know, certainly one of the fastest uh, growth rates over the next five years. Looking forward, what we find that a lot of companies are, are doing with the edge is, especially in this IoT world, because there's, there's so much, many more sensors that are available now to get information from. The thing is, is that is that in, in industrial automation, things need to be kept in a real-time domain. So people don't necessarily feel comfortable sensing that data and maybe going through a process of sending that data up, let's say, directly to the cloud. So what they like is they like an intermediate point where that data can be gathered, analyzed, conditioned as needed, done that in real time, and then that data can either be used for the control system, for example, if it's going to help make control decisions or provide feedback for the operator, giving them, uh, you know, that single version of the truth in real time. At the same time, that data can also be now sent to the cloud because it could be uh, used, let's say, for production management applications. It could be uh, sent off, say, to a data historian. So the edge really provides that intermediary of being able to gather data in a device that's uh, designed for industrial applications and provides um, you know, something that gives people the opportunity to both leverage their existing control infrastructure and at the same time leverage today's uh, cloud infrastructure and really kind of helps you know, with, with this whole phenomenon of ITOT convergence. It really helps make a lot of that production data available to a lot of IT applications that are hosted in the cloud. So edge computing is, is right now a tremendously strong phenomenon, and we expect a very, very bright future for uh, edge going forward. That makes some really good points there. I want to add another thing on that strikes me as I start thinking about even the ARC forum over the last several years. And you have had many presentations that, that focus on, well, a group called the Open Process Automation Forum. I think the first presentations by Don Bartusiak from ExxonMobil were actually done at ARC the first time I heard him. Uh, looking at the research they were doing, saying we want open, interoperable, standards-based, secure, next-generation process automation systems. We're not going to have a proprietary viewpoint towards the future. We need to have more choice, more flexibility. There's a seems to be, over the last several years, a real push towards open standards and open process automation. Can you talk more about what's driving this trend? and how it can play a role in the OT-IT convergence and in the industrial Internet of Things trends? Well, I guess the key here is you know, nobody wants to be a hostage to the past. They don't want to be a hostage to their legacy systems. 
They want to be able to leverage uh, disruptive technology uh, whenever it's available to help and enhance their uh, assets and systems. And the only way way to do that is to make sure that all these solutions that are being deployed on the factory floor adhere to open standards so they can not only communicate with each other, but they can also communicate with a lot of the legacy equipment that may not all be able to be replaced. I mean, we always use a term in industrial automation called rip and replace. And most companies' uh, budgets are not in a position that they can do full rip and replace of all their assets. But at the same time, they want to make sure that they can leverage this latest uh, disruptive technology to move forward. So by adhering to industry uh, standards, uh, open standards, uh, open process automation, which is one of the reasons that the, that, that initiative has been driven, uh, it enables people to be able to take advantage of not only best of breed solutions today, but to be able to be scalable going forward so they can now buy what they need and, and expand as their solutions expand. And at the same time, not be stuck with what I would say is 20 to 30 year life cycles. Uh, in many cases in industrial automation, when the DCS systems used today are sometimes were often purchased in the 1980s. And they're still working 24-7 and uh, they're continuing to run uh, without any downtime. But at the same time, people don't want to be a hostage to the old technology. So this way, it enables them to have uh, to be able to upgrade faster, make changes faster, take advantage of the latest technologies as they're as they're invented, and uh, so it's really something that has been accelerated by ITOT convergence. Because at the same time, you're trying to grow these technologies, you now have to incorporate a lot of the technologies in OT that are coming from IT, especially in the area of data management, cybersecurity, and the cloud. So the whole acceleration of ITOT convergence is actually driving the need for more open standards. So you're not only being able to leverage all the various automation solutions, but now you're able to leverage all the enterprise and IT solutions and making sure that everything can work together and provide a single platform that enables the best of both the IT and the OT world. No, that makes total sense. And I certainly have been... uh involved in, in listening to and participating in the uh, some of the activity in that area. I think you make a good point when you say that organizations, while they live in a brownfield world and they can't rip and replace, as you say, they still don't want to be a hostage to the past. And I think if they're going to take advantage of how fast newer technologies are moving, you have to have the basic platforms and open systems in place and standards based so they can actually take advantage of newer things. On the subject of newer things, I really want to get your comment on two areas, virtual reality, augmented reality. Uh, They're making inroads into manufacturing now. Can you comment on those inroads and where you see it at the present and where you see it may evolve into the future as uh, VR and AR continue to evolve? Well, just like I was mentioning that edge computing is is, is a rapidly growing area in, uh, in industrial automation, you could make the same claim for virtual reality and augmented reality. Because what augmented reality does is, you know, you think of it, you're in a situation where there are fewer workers on the factory floor, whether it be because of just companies, you know, reducing their workers, uh, whether it be with people retiring or losing a lot of the baby boomers. Uh, And certainly today with the the COVID-19 pandemic and with uh, people working remotely and social spacing of having fewer people on the factory floor. 
So now people have to multitask. For example, the plant room operator might be making rounds on the factory floor and maybe even doing to try to look at some of the various equipment on the factory floor that they may not be familiar with. So now, whether they're using a tablet or they're using a smartphone, you wearing a, a real wear helmet, for example, where they're able to you know visualize in their in their Hololens or Google Glass, they now a lot of that extra information is being transported to the worker. So now, as they walk the factory floor, they're able to take advantage of being able to see you know what's what's behind that uh, dusty box, for example, and have that information. It may be a a motor control center, it may be a medium voltage drive, and not only tell them what's inside that box, but uh, if they need to make some, uh, open up the box, uh, safety precautions to make sure if they need to uh, to power off for a safety situation that they know how to do it. So it's a combination of guiding them around the factory floor, providing them with the necessary instructions, and knowing the fact that the person is, has never had any experience or background uh, in a lot of these products or assets they're seeing on the factory floor. So it's actually providing a digital assistant that helps to guide the person around, uh, provides them the information that they need, and helps them make the best decisions without ever having to have been uh, trained or having that experience. So it's really critical in this uh, multitasking world uh, with people uh, getting fewer on the factory floor and people working remotely to have these solutions. And I, and I can tell you that when people are making their purchasing decisions, this is uh, augmented reality is something that they recognize the value with almost almost immediately. It's something that, um, you know, has been so that's one of the reasons for its fast adoption. Now, if we look at the difference between augmented reality and virtual reality, Virtual reality does is, you know, you think of, let's say, gaming, for example, where you're, where you're wearing a, a headset that essentially puts you into this simulated world. But instead of doing it through uh, playing Fortnite, for example, it uh, enables you to actually look, feel as though you are completely immersed in that process. Now, think about it from an aspect of training that uh, now the person that's never had a training course, let's say, in this, in the, in what's going on in the factory floor, you can now simulate almost any potential condition and be able to teach someone how to respond in any potential disaster. And it's interesting because, you know, pilots have been doing this for many years when they, uh, when they go off in a, on a certain level of frequency to assimilate it, to practice scenarios like how to react if there's, uh, something happens to the, to the airplane. And this is a case where the people on the factory floor are able to use virtual reality for training and practicing how to respond to any type of disastrous situation. So again, for uh, augmented reality, for maintenance, virtual reality for training, this is something that uh, we see as having extreme, uh, extremely rapid growth over the next five years, very, very fast adoption amongst uh, all the vertical industries. No, that makes total sense. It certainly has great application when you take a look at both the maintenance and the simulation and the training opportunities to make things a lot safer on a plant floor for those taking that responsibility. So let's talk a little bit about security for a second. There's a lot of companies that are trying to strike, if you will, that kind of tricky balance between increasing access to data while keeping data secure. What are your thoughts about that broad category or more particularly about cybersecurity in general? Well, it's interesting because before the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, many of our, uh, of our manufacturing and processing clients would say there is absolutely no way we would ever make uh, remote access of any of our control systems or factory floor, plant floor assets 
available because we don't really feel as though that uh, from a cybersecurity perspective that it provides us with the level of security to provide uh, access to make monitoring or, or make controlled decisions, for example. What's now happened is after the pandemic, and again, because of uh, social spacing with, with fewer workers in the plant and, and many people working from remote locations or their homes, they're really now in a situation that they really have a choice. Do we continue to operate the plant uh, remotely and take some of the potential risks, or do we not produce? And I think what's happening is most people are saying, what if we were to, based on you know, role-based access, find ways and working with our automation suppliers, our software suppliers, our networking suppliers, uh, companies that specialize in cybersecurity, and and considering that in many cases, most of the automation suppliers are, are manufacturing their systems to standards, let's say like an ISA 62443, many of the cybersecurity precautions are already being taken in the latest hardware. Obviously, there is no perfect system. Cybersecurity is a, is a journey, not a destination. It's something that you always have to try to keep one step above of the you know, continuous uh, uh, hacking that's, that's certainly going to go on now and continue in the future. But what we're finding is is that there's companies that were a little bit more you know resistant to having that remote access are doing it and putting more faith in their systems and their automation and solution suppliers to help to make sure that they have, have the necessary cybersecurity precautions, uh, but at the same time we're making uh, remote access and in certain cases remote control decisions, but certainly everything being role based. So we have begun to see uh, the pandemic has really accelerated this uh, trend towards remote access for areas that was not uh, available in the past. And we see this, Don, going forward as the new normal. Now that people are getting used to this uh, remote access and getting comfortable with this remote access, that this is something that's going to continue uh, you know, post-pandemic. I think you make a really good point. It may not have, have moved so fast if it weren't for COVID-19 and the pandemic challenges, but since that pushed out of necessity, remote access and remote monitoring in the manufacturing space faster than it would have evolved probably without that impetus from the outside. But when you get over that discomfort and you start realizing you can do things in a secure way in a remote setting, and it gives you more flexibility to deal with stresses and pandemics or challenges that may impact manufacturing in the future, uh, I think you're right. I think it's going to become a new normal. We're certainly seeing it with inductive in our organization and our technology. Basically, the utilization of that capability becomes more and more demanded by manufacturers. And I don't think there's going to be a going back to the old. This will be the, the new normal, as you say, Craig. So let's go to the broad topic. For the last uh, many years at the ARC conference, we've certainly heard the words digital transformation. Whether you talked, as you said, that you deal in smart cities, where you're talking about the manufacturing space across really all verticals. So this topic, industrial organizations going through digital transformation, it's meant in the general sense doing things like going paperless or automating more processes or increasing data accessibility. While that is a great start, you guys look at this a lot with ARC. What further value can still be achieved through digital transformation as it continues to evolve? Well, you know, it really depends on where a lot of these customers are in the, in, in the journey. For example, the, the first step we call is to digitize, which is really taking, for example, a lot of you know, manual processes and things that were measured, let's say, in an analog fashion 
and shift that over to a, you know, a digital process. And that's where a lot of companies are now. To really leverage digital transformation, it's, it's actually moving from digitize to digitalize. But the difference when you're going from digitize to digitalize is now you've already gone through the digitizing process. And now how are you able to take everything that you've, that you've converted into digital information and be able to leverage the latest technologies to process it appropriately and, and really kind of accelerate through digital transformation. And what I would mean by that is that, for example, now you're able to, you've collected all this great data, you've put in this, uh, you know, a lot of these low cost IoT sensors, for example. But if you're not doing the right descriptive and predictive analytics, for example, to take advantage of that data, and be able to make the right business decisions, to be able to be storing that data on any conceivable scenario. So now you can move to the stage of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And again, making future decisions based on the fact that you've pretty much uh, seen almost any potential scenario that could have happened. And now you're able to make the right steps using artificial intelligence and machine learning. So that's one area that we're digitalizing uh, the digital information has really helped. We talked a little earlier about augmented reality and virtual reality. You know, for that to be done, you really need to have gone from this process of digitalizing all this information and recording, uh, you know, what's going on in every asset and taking information uh, based on these sensors. So now you can provide that information to the operators or to the people in the factory floor or the people who are working remotely. That really helps too. You can't really enable augmented reality and virtual reality if you haven't kind of gone through this digital transformation process. What we've also found in the pandemic is that the companies best able to respond to the pandemic and best set up to survive the pandemic and in certain cases even thrive during the pandemic based on what particular markets they're in, they're the companies who have actually already gone further down that digital transformation path. So in reality, what digital transformation does is it makes companies resilient to any potential disaster, kind of planning for the unplanned. And that uh, so what we're finding is that even companies who've been a little hesitant in the past to move forward with digital transformation, we have seen a tremendous acceleration by the pandemic because they recognize that if they don't go through this process, they are really going to be uh, in a situation that even sometimes their long-term viability is at stake. It is accelerating at a, at a rapid pace. Think of it. You're in a situation where you're a pulp and paper company. And, you know, a situation we've all witnessed, uh, you make uh, you know, toilet tissue. And uh, a typical company makes, say, 70% of that product for residential use and 30% of that product for industrial use or commercial use, I should say. Different grade of product, different type of materials. They've leveraged more recycling materials in the industrial grade product. And now you've got to make that shift right away to keep the store shelves stocked. Uh, less people using it in, uh, in, in, in industry and commercial applications, more people using it at home. Are you equipped with digital transformation to be able to change your manufacturing on the fly? Also, from a supply chain perspective, now you're going to need a different type of materials to, to manufacture the product. But what factories are even open? I mean, maybe you were sourcing some of your products in China. Those factories may have closed. Now you're looking, say, to Europe. And those factories have closed. And you're looking to North America. 
those factories have closed. But now the factories in China, for example, are beginning to reopen. So what it does is it enables companies to be flexible, have a real-time visibility and flexibility into the supply chain, and actually bringing real-time to supply chain decisions. You know, one time we only thought of a real-time for the factory floor. Now we're bringing real-time to business decisions such as uh, where am I sourcing my products? How fastly can I get my raw materials to keep up with market demand? So this pandemic has really rapidly accelerated digital transformation just for, just again, for the ability for these factories to be responsive. I mean, for the companies that are making uh, cleaners, companies uh, certainly going back in the chemical industry, certainly uh, companies back in pulp and paper who are uh, manufacturing cardboard and packaging materials with the absolute surge in uh, online sales shipped directly to the home consumer that may not want to uh, shop in a retail store right now? How am I making the necessary cardboards and packaging materials? And and again, being able to handle these market surges, food and beverage companies, uh, pharmaceutical companies that are uh, really under the gun to uh, keep up with the demands right now. Even the companies that have been negatively affected by COVID-19, such as, say, oil and gas, where the pricing has, you know, had, had plummeted, uh, supply was in abundance. Obviously, we've seen a recovery to a certain extent in the oil and gas industry with pricing and, and, and some of that really excess supply beginning to be worked off. But these companies have had to make major capex cuts. So a lot of manual labor has been converted into, it needs to be converted into digital labor. And in many cases, this has really accelerated uh, digital transformation processes, even with companies that are uh, unfortunately forced to, re- you know, work with lower headcounts and be able to automate some of the data gathering processes, for example, and uh, some of the other processes that were very labor intensive. So it's it's had an effect on the companies who are, are doing well because of the pandemic and companies who are uh, certainly sometimes fighting more of their own CapEx and OpEx budget challenges uh, by having to implement these solutions. So uh, either way, uh, digital transformation has been greatly accelerated by the COVID-19 pandemic, and it's going to keep companies more resistant for the future if, God forbid, you have a rebound with this particular pandemic or you're, or you're in a situation that there could be uh, pandemics in the, in the future. So I think, uh, again, this has uh, just accelerated the cause. No, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think that to be resilient, to be agile, to be able to move quickly to a new set of circumstances, a new supply chain requirement, whatever it may be, is going to be critical to these companies. And, and I would agree the acceleration has definitely occurred. Is there any kind of summary you might give a minute of bullet points? Of what are some of the lessons that manufacturers have learned? We're talking about accelerating change. That also swings back to the very first question about resistance to change. So our organizations having to become more agile in terms of accelerating the change in their organizations, as well as some of these other functions that they need to perform differently. Any kind of summary thoughts you may make on that impact of COVID-19 crisis on manufacturing and managing change? Well, I think that this pandemic, you know, will be Harvard Business School case 101 now on who are going to be the winners and the losers uh, regarding this uh, companies that that survive and thrive as you know as uh, after the re- results of the pandemic and those that uh, may not exist in the long term and the reason that I say that is because it really shows that companies that resist change employees that resist change 
aren't going to be able to make it in the long term because we really can't, you know, when I was saying the about planning for the unplanned, I don't know of any company that really had in their business plan a response to a global pandemic. I've seen companies that have had responses to, you know, natural disasters and, uh, you know, weather-related issues, but I haven't quite seen one that said, okay, how, what are we going to do in a pandemic? And what it says is that to make sure the company can be resilient to what we don't know could possibly happen in the future, the only way to do your best to ensure that is to make sure that you are really well along your um, digital transformation journey, that you have systems in place that can allow you to react in real time, that give you the ability to control and monitor your processes from any location, anywhere. Systems that enable you to be able to know what's going on on your factory floor, even if it's a fewer or no employees. If you're in a case where you have fewer employees that now are going to be in a multitasking situation, do they have the right tools to be able to get the information that they need to make the best decisions, uh, getting back to the augmented reality story? So this is going to separate the winners and the losers. So I think that if you're going to be making decisions as far as which companies to, to bet on in the future, you know, when you're kind of reading through their uh, annual reports, for example, I think that seeing you know, sections on digital transformation and how we have digitalized our entire you know, business and manufacturing processes, those are going to be the companies that will withstand and thrive any future disasters, ones, again, that we could not have thought of or planned of just yet. No, some very good points there, Craig. Listen, I want to thank you for taking a good chunk of time, sharing your experience, sharing your expertise with us. Really appreciate having the conversation with me today. Before we wrap up, any final thoughts, anything you want to share with our audience as we end off here? I think that for those that were always trying to justify the digital transformation process, that are looking, for example, to say, you know, what's the return on investment? And I, I can't make any sort of investment decisions unless I can really uh, have very, very uh, thorough calculations of when these uh, digital transformation solutions are going to pay for themselves. Just look in the mirror and just say the word pandemic. And I can assure you that that's all the evidence that you need if you are looking to uh, go through the digital transformation process. So all I could say is, do not hesitate, proceed, and I think that's going to be your difference between the companies that are uh, that'll be here uh, six months from now, twelve months from now, eighteen months from now, and those that uh, may may no longer exist in their present form. Very good point. Listen, thank you so much again. Appreciate your insights. Very valuable for our audience, and it's always great to have a chance to have a conversation. Thanks, Don. Always great to be here. Hey listeners, this is a quick reminder to subscribe to our podcast if you're enjoying the conversations. Also, if you have a topic or a question you'd like us to cover, or if you're interested in being a guest on a future episode, then please send your inquiries to podcast at inductiveautomation.com.